0: Today's episode of No Till Flowers is brought to you by Growing for Market Magazine.
1: Want to know the top ten most profitable flowers to grow on a limited acreage? How to manage a greenhouse for cut flowers, or how to structure a profitable farm business? Learn all of that and more by subscribing to Growing for Market Magazine, founded by the flower farmer author Lynn Bazinski. Growing for Market is celebrating 30 years of helping local food and flower growers succeed. With articles written by industry leaders like Elliot Coleman, Aaron Benzikin, and Jean Martin Fortier. by farmers for farmers. Plus, subscriptions start at only $30 per year. Whether you do farmers markets, local wholesaling, a CSA, or dream of starting a farm, check them out today at growingformarket.com. Request a free sample print or digital copy from the website And podcast listeners can get a new subscriber discount of 25% off when using the code SOIL when subscribing at growingformarket.com. Again, that code is SOIL. And I want to throw in just a personal off-script plug here to say how much I value my own subscription to Growing for Market. Editor Andrew and his team put together a fantastic collection of articles for each issue. There's always flower-related content, but to be honest, I find the stories about employee management and small farm equipment and so many other topics just as valuable. So that's a big two thumbs up for me here personally.
0: Today's show is also brought to you by Farmer's Friend. It's no secret that almost everything grows better in a tunnel. Bring the benefits of greenhouse production to your veggie or flower farm in an affordable and easy to assemble package from Farmer's Friend Caterpillar Tunnel Kits. They're quick to build and move, come in a variety of styles and sizes, and include everything you need to make installation a breeze. Can attest to this, I own two of these tunnels myself, and they are super easy to put up and take down as needed. Plus, if you order two or more tunnels of any size, You'll get free shipping on your entire order. Also be sure to check out Farmer's Friend's growing selection of small farm tools and supplies like the pyro weeder, silage tarps, landscape fabric, row covers, shade cloth, irrigation kits, and more. If you are ready to increase efficiency on your farm and earn higher profits with less work, visit FarmersFriend.com today. Put in your earbuds, pour a
1: cup of tea. Put on your work gloves. It's time for another episode of the No Till Flowers Podcast. As always, I'm your nerdy host, Jenny Love of Love and Fresh Flowers. I created this podcast to drill into the details of truly natural farming, be it no till or biostimulants or whatever as it relates to flower farming. I felt like there was a void in the industry for this kind of information. And since I'm in my third season of No-Till here on my farm and I still have lots of questions, I thought this podcast would be a great way for me to ask those questions and hopefully get some good answers from our guests. So let's get started. This podcast has really been picking up steam over the past couple of episodes, and I feel like I've been learning so much through these conversations, and I really hope that you guys have been too. Today, I'm talking to Molly and Asher from On the Mountain Farm in Maine. There's lots of great conversation points here, including moving a farm because leased land was yanked out from under them. Oh dear. Uh, Turning a hay field into a really productive flower farm without ever breaking out the tiller, woohoo, which is how they came to love tarps so much. And we also talk about biodynamics. And this is a topic I have really been eager to have with somebody. Um, have a conversation with somebody about this. And Asher did not disappoint with his brief overview and some really helpful resources for how to get started with biodynamics and how he thinks they... um, are really helpful to growing flowers especially with stem length and they say their flowers glow which i'm very intrigued by so i'm definitely eager to try some biodynamics on my farm and i'm really grateful for molly and asher sharing their knowledge here in this podcast so it got me a few new few new stepping stones to getting going so all right let's go Molly and Asher from On the Mountain Farm in Maine are with me today, and I have a feeling this is going to be a really fun conversation. So let's start with your eleva- elevator speech, guys. Um, basically, like, what are your farm beats and what are you guys generally about up there? Well, we are located
2: in the Midcoast region of Maine. We are about an hour and a half north of Portland. We are right on the coast. Um, We're in a region where a lot of people have vacation homes. There's a lot of weddings. People come up here like just to get married. It's really busy in the summer. Um, It's really cold in the winter. And yeah, we've got our little flower farm here. And that's sort of what we got going on. We, We mainly grow flowers. We also sell a lot of veggie seedlings in the spring. And we actually, due to the pandemic, ended up growing a little bit of veggies this spring too, which we brought to our farmer's market. So that was kind of cool to try something new for us.
1: Yeah. So do you think you'll continue with some vegetables in the rotation? Or are you going to go back to all flowers?
2: I think we're going to keep growing some veggies just because it was nice to have veggies for our household as well. Because sometimes it feels like like we've always tried to grow a garden but we never seem to end up doing it <laughs> it's yeah sad sometimes even though, even though it does work out well that we can trade veggies or for veggies at the farmers market which is awesome um but yeah i think as our farm gets more established here we're able to see like where there's holes in the markets that we're involved in so it seems nice to be able to try a bunch of different stuff as well like you know, there weren't a lot of early greens at our farmer's market this year, so we were able to bring them. And hmm. so that just worked out really well. But it does, it, it does add a whole new, figuring out all the new processes, like washing the veggies or something, because it, it is a really different, they are really different crops.
1: Yeah, they really are. I, I tried a few vegetables this year myself as well because of the pandemic and did veggie starts for sale. Which led to me putting them in production in my field. And like you, yeah. I never was able to grow a veggie garden because <laughs> I didn't have time. Yeah. <laughs> but it's amazing if you put that row in the middle of your row of flowers, it actually gets weeded and watered. Yes, and all this exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I think I'm I'm going to try growing more for myself. But I don't think I'll ever be able to really do vegetable production where you have to wash it and prep it and do all this stuff. But I'm I'm excited to hear that you guys are doing that because I think there's some value in diversifying our crops. You know, flowers are so diverse to begin with. But to add the vegetables, especially root vegetables, I think could be really helpful to the farm (laughs) ecosystem. So yeah. So tell me a little bit, though, like what size is your farm and how long have you been farming flowers?
3: We're uh, growing uh, probably between a half and a quarter acre worth of bed space over about three acres right now. We're growing on on permanent raised beds. don't have a tractor, so that's kind of led to how we've developed the farm this way. Um, and we, we are putting in more perennial crops each year. Um, so that, that's kind of starting to change the farm a little bit. And, and like we said, we we're doing a bit of veggies too. We're just trying to kind of stay diverse so we can stay more local um, and not have to just grow more and more flowers and then look for more and more markets for that. Started
2: our farm in 2015. So we started our, yeah, we started our farm, on leased property, um, Maine has a lot a lot of help for farmers. Um, so we were able to um, get linked with a farm through this program. I'm not even sure it still exists anymore, but it's called Farmlink. And so we were able to lease a farm. So we leased the farm for two years and then we found this property, which is about 45 minutes um, from our leased property and it was a hay field. So. We then lost the lease on our leased property and we had to move here. So we moved into a shed.
3: (laughs) Kind of unexpectedly, we found out like we had our greenhouse running and like found out in like March we had to be out of that house by May, but they allowed us to lease on the field. So we were allowed to keep growing there. So we kind of lived in a shack here on this new property while we tried to get our greenhouses moved and stuff during the season.
2: Yeah. And, so and- <laughs> we, yeah, our, the people who own the house got divorced. And so oh. I had to move back into
1: the house. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. I was wondering. Yeah, I was like, yeah. what circumstances were there yeah. behind that? <laughs>
2: so we, moved, we, had, we had gotten this land the fall before and we had put up a little shed building. So we moved into our shed and we had like a hose for water and an extension cord for power. And we spent that summer building our house and moving our farm and farming the, the leased property 45 minutes away. So wow, it was wow. really crazy. And I, I do not recommend ever doing that or ever <laughs> having to move your farm. Like farms are not made to be moved. Um, so that was three years ago. So we've just been, um, trying to get, you know, turn a hayfield into a farm, basically, while building a house the past few wow.
1: I have a lot of a lot of questions about all of that. So one of them is to start with because I, I know a lot of listeners are going to have like they're starting out flower farming and they're going to be on leased land. And I know I was on leased land and still am um, but originally was on a much uh, smaller plot. Um, tell us what you would change about that lease arrangement now in hindsight that would have helped <laughs> with this scenario. Do tell. <laughs>
3: I don't know that. I mean, the lease went all right. It was really unexpected circumstances for everybody. So I don't know that that we could have anticipated it. The, the, the house wasn't ever offered as like, uh, it was just a year by year lease. It wasn't really ever offered long term. And, and they did, they worked with us and they were very kind and they, they allowed us, you know, to continue to farm there and they helped us flip on the irrigation every now and again when we couldn't make it out there. And, and you know, we, we kind of worked it out. Um, but we, being on lease land was challenging, and it, it definitely limited what we did. We, we definitely did not do much perennials. We kept everything in annuals. We we were kept everything almost packed up and ready to go because we we kind of knew that could happen at any moment. And um, we we had been saving and and trying to get our own land for a couple years there during that lease, um, and so we were somewhat prepared for finding a place eventually that we could afford and and it all kind of just came together a lot quicker than we thought it was going to.
1: <laughs> it sounds like it. So what was it like to take a hayfield and was it being was it a hayfield actively or was it an old hayfield but like how what was it like to take that and turn it into a productive biologically active
3: um flower farm? Um it it was it was neat. It was uh, we, we got to do things a little more ideally. I think on our first property, when we got that lease, we had to prepare a field there so quickly that that was, that was the last time we ever tilled. So we hired somebody to till that orig- initially for us on that lease property. And we put in our first field and immediately saw the effects of that as our raised bed sunk really quickly. And we just saw this huge loss of organic matter. And all of a sudden our whole field that we were growing in was sitting like an inch lower than the rest of the field around it. That still had sod on it. And, um, that was a much sandier soil also. So then when we got to this new property, we're in a much heavier, more clay soil here. Um, sort of almost the edge of a marsh area in in coastal Maine. So as, as much of coastal Maine is, um, we're lucky. We don't have any rocks here. We've yet to really find any (laughs) rocks, but, uh, we're, we're, uh, we, so, we got to start a little more ideally here. So we ended up tarping the fields here.
2: First we mm. spread rock dust.
3: And oh yeah, we, we first spread rock dust all over the whole property, um, which we got from Pioneer Valley basalt, um, which is out in like Western Massachusetts. Um, and that kind of helps fix trace elements, trace minerals, things like that. It brought more silica into our system. Um, and, and just helped loosen up the soil a little bit as well, um, as mind. it's more, more sandy. And, and had you
1: done a soil test and that's why you decided to do that? Or was that just like, oh, this probably can't do any harm and probably will only do good. So we're just gonna spread it. Like what was the deciding, the way to decide to spread the rock dust?
3: We, we did do some saturated paste tests at first, just on the field. And we had a, 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 an agronomist come out and look at the soil with us. Because we also had a high water table here, which we have in much of Maine, um, and some other things that we were, you know, nervous about. Because we only got to see it um, in the spring; we hadn't seen it go through all the years. And we knew the property was so affordable it would sell if we didn't jump on it. So we did our best to kind of, you know, see that it would be a good agricultural soil. And then um, from there, we started just amending, just basic stuff. We just tried to, to fix pH a little bit with a little bit of lime. And then we tried to fix a lot of, you know, the trace things that were a little off just from spreading some rock dust. And, um, then we, we tarped and we knew that was like easiest to do when we hadn't put beds in because we had a, a lime spreader that like an old John Deere eight foot, uh, spreader Mm -hmm. that we Mm -hmm. just ran behind our truck. And we were just able to drive over the grass. Um, We knew once we put our beds in that we would have to more so like wheelbarrow stuff out and do it more by hand. Yeah. Um, So we just went ahead with one big application of that. And we ended up doing about seven tons per acre of rock dust. You can do up to like 10 tons per acre. And that usually will fix most small things for about 10 years, they say.
1: Oh, wow. Um, I didn't know that. That's fantastic.
3: There's a lot of theories on rock dust. So, uh, you know, (laughs) depends on who you talk to.
1: Right, right. Nice. So you, so first you spread rock dust and lime over just the, the standing stubble of the hay field or whatever was there, and then you pulled giant tarps over it and let it sit for a while?
3: Yep, yep. And we, uh, we still ended up, our first field we had to get in really quickly, so we basically just kind of killed the grass back, but it was still, still sod there, and we had to turn that in with a burda plow um, with our walk behind BCS which does a little bit more like what a disc would do, um, less of what a tiller, it doesn't really smash the soil as much. It kind of cuts it and flips it. Gotcha. Um, and then the other beds that we could wait a little longer on, we, we waited like eight months on some of them and a year on some of them. And, and by a year, there's nothing left. It's just it, it's just dirt underneath. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. amazing. You, you can
2: just shove your hand down into it and you haven't done anything except tarp it that's phenomenal
1: and probably the drainage is better that way too instead of yeah. tilling it like you said when the Definitely. other property yeah yeah
3: that, that's ideal scenario
1: yeah <laughs> so and then so when we put
2: in a field we we lay it out you know we we use tape measures we're and string with rebar like we're very ex- as exact as you can be and um we use three foot beds. We originally started with four-foot beds, but we just found it was just too hard to, hmm. you know, plant and to reach. You just felt like you were kind of
1: straining a lot. Yeah, I totally agree.
2: Yeah, and we and all of our beds are a hundred-foot beds, um, and so we use the birda plow to shape them, and they're pretty high. They're probably like four inches or five inches tall. Um, cause we do, we do have a high water table and we do have wet springs. Um, and so I don't know, it just works really well to have kind of these higher beds and we're able to get into our beds right away in the spring. And we never would be able to do that if we were using a tractor, like we would just destroy the fields. Yeah. We, yeah we get yeah. very muddy here. Yeah, Maine has a pretty serious mud season.
1: <laughs> so I've heard. <laughs> yeah so when you're getting started in the spring then with these raised beds that have already been established are you adding compost or other amendments to it what's your process for getting going in the spring
3: um yeah we're so our method kind of for making the beds I can just run through it ideally would be that we tarp for a year and that kind of stale seed beds everything also so it'll it'll sprout any seeds that are Close to the surface and then kill them back, as well as killing the sod. And then the worms kind of come up and they eat everything. And you're left with just basically like a topsoil with worm castings on it. And then we could just use the burda plow uh, on just partial depth and throw the aisle up onto the bed without ever really touching the bed. And then we can broad fork the bed and then we'll wrap it in landscape fabric and plant it. Um, sometimes we'll add compost if it if it needs more organic matter or if we're trying to get more nutrients onto it Um, we have less issue with with nutrients here we had to put a lot of compost on our beds when we were in sandier soil and it would just disappear instantly and here you can still see kind of the compost from the season before and our CEC is a lot higher we can kind of hold nutrients in the soil a lot more easily here
1: you must love that that must be such a, a delight after fighting sandy soil for so long <laughs>
2: we we do move a lot of compost by hand it, we, we're having to do less compost now that the beds are more established and we've been able to build up the organic matter but the first few years we were moving a lot of compost and spreading a lot of compost on the beds every year um but we 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 had a we had a lot of good help last spring because some of our friends we're out of work so they came and worked for us so we we did we we composted every bed last year because we had um a lot of extra hands so i don't know if we'll necessarily need to do it again this year um because they're they're just so nice now we never we never walk on them um so they're just so light you almost don't even have to broad fork anymore you can kind of just like stick the seedlings in we don't do any direct seeding we just Grow seedlings. We just do, yeah. you know, starts. Um, Transplant
3: everything.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Is that a decision because um, you haven't had success with direct seeding, or is it a a systems choice?
2: Yeah. Every bed has fabric. We only grow in fabric. The, ah. the, yeah. The times that I've tried to not put down a fabric, and I've been like, oh, I'm definitely going to be on top of this, and we're definitely <laughs> going to keep this weeded. It's just, it's just disaster <laughs> it's <just> awful <laughs> and uh we we really try to be weed free so we don't want any weeds to go to seeds so
3: or any spaces like we we yeah. want a hundred percent stand we want a plant in every hole and it's, that's a good canopy and then it kind of we don't have to weed we, we we tend to weed once or maybe twice um as the seedlings are getting established and then as as soon as they set a canopy, we usually don't have to weed. Maybe, maybe a single weed here and there, but.
1: Nice. Nice. That sounds dreamy. (laughs) Yeah. Because we're just, you know, we're small
2: and it's, it's, we, sometimes we have help and sometimes we don't have help. Like it's, it's hard for us to find employees around here somewhat because there's, there is a lot of work in the summer and, you know, the minimum wage here is pretty high. Like, Maine is working up towards a $15 an hour minimum wage. So, you know, people can find um, more glamorous jobs than <laughs> laboring on a farm. A but can they stuff.
1: get the lifestyle? Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
3: Um, and work through the winter of doing carpentry. That's a tough right, one. Right,
1: okay,
2: yeah,
3: yeah, oh, that's yeah. good, yeah. nice, best, so.
1: So tell me, why did you decide to start farming flowers in the first place? You know, like, I'm, you know, I'm, I know there's lots of veggie growers in Maine. And um, what drew you to flowers instead of growing vegetables or some other farming enterprise? And while we're at it, what just drew you to farming in general?
2: I think we both have, we both always have worked in kind of different horticulture fields. Like, I had a landscaping and lawn mowing business. When I was like 18, I started that and then worked um, like at a native plant nursery and worked like at, at an inn doing the gardens, you know, just kind of worked different jobs like that. And Asher worked on veggie farms. And then as we were kind of figuring out that we kind of wanted to start our own farm together, we were in North Carolina, but I grew up in Maine and my family is up here. So we decided to come back to start our farm up here because we knew once we started the farm we probably would never really get to leave (laughs) 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 and i wanted to be able to see my family um so when we got up here i don't know we we just kind of i think we caught the wave of, of you know when the small scale market gardening stuff was really getting going and then flower farming was really becoming a thing and just caught the bug and it, it was a good way for us to get into some of the markets that we're in. There are a lot of veggie farmers in Maine and a lot of really great veggie farmers in Maine, so it was kind of a good niche for us to fill.
1: Nice. Uh, it yeah. sounds like it, it was. It's really working out so far, so that's a plus. <laughs>
3: yeah, yeah. Yeah the, yeah. the support system up here is awesome for farms, but it also means there's a lot of good farms, and it's, yeah. it's also getting really competitive really quickly.
1: Yeah. So, what is your primary sales outlet then? Farmers markets, or how else are you moving your? Flowers? We do.
2: We do two farmers markets, and then we do um, a wholesale florist route with our van. Mm um and we work with florists and designers um you know we, we have kind of tried everything like we did do weddings for a little bit but we kind of it just was too much to manage for us and we kind of really wanted to be growers and we kind of really enjoyed being like the back end for people to support them in their projects um and we do do some bulk buckets to brides and there's a lot of parties around here and events and so like people just need flowers for stuff and they're really used to having flowers. Um, it's not like a luxury item. I think a lot of people see it as just, they, they're gonna have flowers. Um, so just being where we are, like it's been great to be where we're located we're, since we used to be like 45 minutes away. Now we're kind of in the middle of it. So we just, people are starting to know that we're here and we have stuff. Um, And we do some like grocery store bouquets and we kind of just do like a mix of stuff. We're always just making sure we can use every stem and get it to somewhere.
1: And you feel like you're able to do that. There's not like a, there's always demand. You're always trying to meet demand and there's not a surplus then. At this point, yeah,
2: we're usually don't really have any extra
1: that's
2: awesome yeah Yeah, we have problems (laughs) just like (laughs) managing all that and and getting enough help and like making it work because we do work really crazy hours in the summer it's been hard to spread out our season because people don't get up here until the summer and summer in Maine is just really full out I think in a lot of industries up here most people make their money in the summer and then it's kind of you just kind of hunker down in the winter. Um, So we haven't really been able to, to like spread the work. Spread it out. Yeah. Yeah.
3: We make the majority of our income for the year in about four months.
1: Wow.
2: (laughs) Which are a lot of
3: long days. Yeah.
1: Talk about pressure though. Holy moly. (laughs) No wonder you're working long days. No days off. Especially (laughs)
3: with a year like this one.
1: Oh yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. How did COVID impact you guys? Were you able to keep going as quickly and intensely as usual, or did it take a lot of sort of pause and regroup kind of activity? We were
2: kind of like really happy to have, like to be starting to be in the greenhouse a lot in March when things just started to be so weird. And we just were like, okay, we're, we already planned for all this and paid for most of this so like we don't we have to just go for it and then you know as as you're watching like okay everything for may is postponed okay everything for june is postponed okay everything's just canceled (laughs) like (laughs) um yeah it was definitely interesting i know we i i would we I made sure to plant a lot for bouquet making because I figured, okay, we might be making like a lot of bouquets and trying to move bouquets because that would be a way to move flowers if it's not for like, if there's not a lot of events. So that was one big change. And then we also like started every, every veggie seed we had in our stash and I used every pot that we had because we couldn't, they were like, you couldn't get pots. yeah so we we were we sold we yeah we sold tons of seedlings which we usually do like a little bit but we did a lot of seedlings and i'm trying to think we also yeah we did the veggies and we just kind of kept moving and it and it all worked out you know we just yeah
3: As as kind of the events went away the forest got busier with like day-to-day stuff and A lot of the designers started doing like pop-ups and and different, you know, everybody was kind of working whatever angle they could to get flowers out to people. And people were being really supportive of small businesses up here in Maine. So everybody kind of, everyone we know pretty much was able to hang in there.
2: And that's one thing that that was hard with like the ordering is usually I try to set limits on people ordering. They have to order by a certain day. So it just, gives us time to harvest and everything and people were just calling so last minute like I just got this order or I just got this little thing can you help me can you get me the product and you know I would be like yeah I can do it but it just it was just also last minute you know and I'm trying to help them out and it's helping me out to be able to sell stuff but it just made the ordering really hectic so I'm just now hoping i can retrain everyone right here so that
1: they don't keep doing that frantic texting
3: a lot of extra last minute work for sure yeah
1: yeah, yeah. and was that because suddenly people decided to get married on the spur of the moment because i'm guessing a lot yeah. of the weddings in your area are destination and then that must have gotten closed down essentially in maine i would
2: Yeah. It definitely got closed down and yeah. Then, and then, but like somebody would be like, oh, there's a little cocktail party or, oh, there's somebody is getting an arrangement for this or whatever. And, and they would be like getting all these like little last minute orders or like something would come up, you know, at the very last minute of a small gathering or a dinner party or a barbecue or something. And they would be like, can you, can you get me stuff? And I'd be like, sure yeah
3: and and they'd suddenly have a bigger budget for the flowers because they had canceled all their catering and all their you know right. large events so they just wanted to do something real pretty with just their family kind of.
2: yeah. yeah September got really crazy because it there were so many elopements because I think people were like oh it's kind of now or never right <laughs> like this is the last good weather I guess we'll just do it so yeah
1: yeah, I think that that happened down here in Philadelphia, too. It was just sort of like, yeah, everybody realized, you know, there's a second surge is coming. We better do it now and get it, get it done. So so I'm curious, since there is such an appreciation for flowers in Maine, which is awesome, because I feel like here in, in metropolitan areas like Philadelphia, it's, it's always a bit of an uphill battle to get people to even just want flowers. So this year, there's definitely such Uh, a renewed interest in flowers. But generally speaking, when there's a culture of flower appreciation already, does that mean that you can get good prices for your flowers there? Or is it just that people expect sort of like, you know, quote unquote, farmer's market bunches? You know what I mean? Like, is there is there a correlation between flower appreciation and good prices? Or does that really happen? No, definitely. And
2: I also would say people don't really want they don't want it to look farmers markety. Mm, they want okay. it to look more high end. Like they don't like rubecchia. They don't like even zinnias that much. Um, yeah. So it it changes what we have to grow as well, even though there is an appreciation, they, they're, they can, they demand a, a certain level of quality, I would say. So they're
1: flower snobs is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which and can be know, good.
2: Yeah. They know a lot about flowers. Okay. Um, okay. Too, which is fun as well because they know what they want, which is helpful, you know, um, if, as long as I can plan accordingly to have what they want. <laughs> Um, we also grow a lot of lilies. We grow a lot of lilies in crates. Um, oh,
1: interesting. Okay.
2: Let's talk better. about that. Yeah, that's been a great thing for us to have because we can schedule, you know, we, we plant them every two weeks in the crates and we can schedule them basically, you know, so we always have them and our florists love them and our farmer's market customers love them. So that's been a great crop for us. And it it's a way to, um, utilize space in another way, you know?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And are, are you doing- I got
3: to enter the door real quick. I got Somebody just pulled up.
1: <laughs> oh, <laughs> it's all good. <laughs> no worries. Time to take a quick break and get a word from one of our great sponsors that makes this podcast possible. Flowers are reaching a diverse and appreciative customer base today through farmers markets, CSAs, grocery stores, weddings, contactless delivery, and UPIC. This diversity is supported by the strong community of members in the Association of Specialty Cut Flower Growers. Since 1988, the association, better known as the ASCFG, has been uniting and educating specialty cut flower growers across the globe, supplying them with accurate and up-to-date information about best practices for both the production and marketing of cut flowers. The ASCFG publishes the only trade magazine in North America dedicated entirely to specially cut flowers. It also produces a host of classes and conferences on topics ranging from floral design to irrigation. The connections made with growers through an ASCFG membership are priceless. My own flower business would not be where it is today without the generous mentorship of fellow ASCFG members. Visit ascfg.org to learn more about all the great benefits of becoming a member. Mention no-till flowers when joining and receive a $50 discount on a new membership. All right, let's get back to this great conversation and dig even deeper. So you're growing under cover there, clearly. You must be because it's such a short outdoor growing season. So how much space do you have undercover and how do you utilize that just to start transplants and to have the crates for lilies? Or are you trying to grow in the greenhouse as well for production?
2: Yeah, we have two heated greenhouses, um, and then we have a couple of, like, they're caterpillar tunnels, but we we they're, like, 15 by 100, but we have, like, actually built out the sides and put roll-up sides on them. And we actually keep them up all year and just kind of manage the snow. So we plant, we plant the heated tunnels, like, mid-March. Um, so that we have stuff starting when our farmers market starts which is usually like beginning of May and then we plant the unheated tunnels usually like mid-April and it's you know it's amazing to have covered space it's the best (laughs) so well undercover so (laughs) we're just always wanting to add more covered space and But we end up having to build them at the greenhouses in the winter and it's hard. Yeah, (laughs) I can only
1: imagine. We we do not
2: have time to work on infrastructure really in the summer. And then our time to do the infrastructure is usually like in pretty um, challenging weather. So,
1: how do you guys, since you moved your greenhouses onto this new farm, did you just put them on top of the area that had been tarped and just like started? like that? Or did you do anything to prepare the soil in the greenhouse area in particular?
3: We, well, we, we like put them up kind of rushed at first. So we planted them on uneven ground or put them in on uneven ground. And then we just rolled out landscape fabric inside them and then use them. That's This is the first one we moved. We, we used that in the spring with tables inside for seedlings. And then while the seedlings were going, it killed back the grass. And then we pulled back the fabric and then broad fork beds into that and, and planted that. Um, and then this last year we ended up taking that greenhouse down and putting up a bigger one and we leveled the site first. And so now we're each year, then we've got another, a second one. That's I can say how we did the new not on level ground, that we're also needing to rebuild next year. <laughs> um, so every year we're kind of having to redo what we d- weren't able to do ideally. And uh, we've also learned more about the, just the moisture on this property and how the, the soil works. And so we, this last one that we rebuilt, we leveled, and then we built French drains around it as well. And we insulated about a foot into the ground. So hopefully we can keep the soil a little bit warmer to go further into the fall. Um, so wait, all,
1: how do you how do you insulate into the ground on a greenhouse? I haven't heard of that before. What's that mean?
3: We, we buried, um, blueboard insulation down wow. into the ground uh, vertically around the perimeter, around the ground post. And then we, we covered that with polycarbonate and then put gravel and a French drain up against that. Oh, so wow.
1: That's, that's kind of blowing my mind. Cause I, I haven't, maybe this is really common in colder growing areas, but I've never heard of that down here. And then how deep did you put that in and how effective is that for soil temps in the house?
3: We went about a foot deep on this one. Um, we're, we're not sure, as we haven't seen it go through the winter yet. We're going to find out this winter. Um, th- this was a technique we learned about from uh, Paul and Sandy Arnold, who are farmers up in New York State, um, veggie farmers. And uh, they, they do a lot of season extension techniques and stuff like that. Wow. And they, they've um, mentored a lot of folks that uh, have farms here in Maine.
2: I think, um, I think Connor at Sink Farm maybe also does that as well. I think it's a, you know, it's a way that people are growing further into the shoulder seasons and in the winter. And and you can also, if you can keep the soil warm, you can, you know, keep the air temperature cooler. So, yeah, we're just always trying to manage that type of balance.
3: Well, long term, I think we would move hot water through the perimeter as well. Um, okay. But we just haven't gotten to that point yet, and we can't afford a boiler right now.
1: <laughs> yeah, but I, I assume that having the sides insulated to begin with is going to make the hot water much more effective in the end. So. Yeah,
3: I think so. I think so. Yeah.
1: Nice. I just can't believe you you put up a greenhouse and then promptly took down that same greenhouse. <laughs> it was. It was. Yeah. It's was. You have to kind of laugh at a certain point.
3: <laughs> None of it's been ideal. Nothing we've done has been yeah. ideal. Yeah. So,
1: the, so the lesson learned is that if you have time to watch your land and yeah. see the water and everything else that happens. Maybe yeah, and like- I mean, if
2: you can afford to rent the equipment to get the land graded, you know, it's there's So sometimes you just have to do it. <laughs> you've got to keep going and you know that you're gonna need it in the spring
1: so yeah, yeah exactly it is still better to get something done than to never have gotten it done at all
2: yeah, <laughs> so and, I mean, we, yeah. and we've we had this so we just finished the screen this new greenhouse like a couple weeks ago and uh it sat in a pile for a year and a half so you know it's mm-hmm.
1: And just, now we've got a bigger one up, yeah, so it's it, good.
2: It just, it all takes so much time. So. Yeah, it really does. Do yeah, you bring
1: in, do you bring in any crew to help you put those structures up? Or are you guys just managing it on your own? We just do it with each other. <laughs> yeah. My hat is off to you. <laughs> I've, I've built two hoop houses, never a greenhouse. Yeah, this is the biggest plastic we ever pulled by ourselves. And it was... It was a lot. It's no easy task, that's for sure. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Well, tell me a little bit more about what you're, it sounds like the, the farm is really growing here, that you're still in this like sort of you know, dream it, build it, expand it. Um, what do you think your ultimate like size of your farm would be? And how many structures do you think you'd like to have? Or do you feel like the scale that you're at at the moment is good for, you know, the level of, you know, <laughs> life work balance, not that there is such a thing. But you know, talk, talk to me a little bit about what it feels like to be at this stage in your growth. Um, I think if things are
2: starting to feel a little more manageable. Like we have you know, a good amount of fields in and the fabrics are burned and we at least have like some greenhouses up, you know, so it, it doesn't feel as frantic. We have a house built, we have indoor like, plumbing, you know, like all these <laughs> things.
3: Warm shower.
2: Yeah. We have uh, you know, we have walk in enough walk in cooler space. And we, so I feel like we we've, we've gotten over the hump of infrastructure right now for a sec. We, we just put in a, <laughs> our first big woody planting this fall. And that felt like really exciting because that's always, you know, when you have your own land, it's exciting oh, yeah. to get your perennials in and stuff. So it'll be fun to see how that goes. Yeah. Um, and I think for us, we've, we're, we try to keep it at a level that we know that the two of us could manage since we have had such a hard time finding employees. So we don't want to get ourselves in a bind of you know, just being stuck, not being able to get the work done. So we're trying to stay at a realistic size. I think just figuring out how to spread the workload is going to be important to us. Um, and I'm sure we will always want more greenhouses. <laughs> They're so great. But they are. Yeah. So I don't see us i don't know how many more we will be able to do or that we have like good spaces for that are near like water and power and everything but and there's other things like we don't have water in the greenhouses like we have to run a hose and fill tanks and then like you know there are certain things like that that would be awesome to have like running water in the greenhouses and just some things things that always like make life easier <laughs> right you know we are we, our farm is very laborious like we do a lot of labor
1: so yeah it sounds like you don't have a ton of big equipment so it's a lot of sort of human scale yes um, intensive <laughs> backbreaking <Yeah. laughs> whenever i hear human scale which i try to farm on <laughs> a human scale but to me that just reads that's code for break your back over yeah back. <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah have you found a way to have you found a way to use your bcs to Streamline anything? Have you have there been any sort of like farm hacks that you guys have come up with that help?
3: We started pulling tarps with the BCS instead of what? dragging them by hand. We just throw a a rope around the uh, like grab a bunch of the tarp on the end and throw a yeah. rope around it and then tie that to the BCS and then pull it with the BCS. That's made life a lot easier.
1: Wow, that it's so simple and yet you've just blown my mind. <laughs> like I don't know why didn't I ever think of that? I didn't think of it. Yeah. <laughs>
3: Um, we
2: we we use we have a riding lawnmower with a like a little cart. We use that all the time. We we use that poor mower like it's a tractor.
1: Or something. Yeah, like a little baby tractor. <laughs> a little baby
2: yeah. tractor. So we use that a lot. um Our we use the flail mower on the BCS to shred all of the crop waste. That that's one thing with the system that I find I don't love our system for it is we are we we try to clear patches as they finish and mow them but at the end of the year there's a lot of crop material in the fields and we've just been kind of clearing it basically by hand sometimes we use a hedge trimmer we've tried different things but just like cleaning up the field at the end of the year is I think we could come up with something more innovative for that we do leave our fabrics in place because we don't like to leave our soil uncovered ever and we've found that we just rock bag heavily all the aisles like 10 bags (laughs) down every aisle so it doesn't blow away yeah so it doesn't blow away because if anyone has ever chased
1: Mm-hmm. landscape
2: fabric or a tarp
3: we spent a couple yeah. winters doing that
2: it's yeah awful,
0: so. it's
1: no fun and then you just don't sleep at night if you're like me yeah. I, there back in the day I just wouldn't sleep because I'd be like oh, I'm so afraid of what I'm gonna walk into tomorrow <laughs> and
0: our,
2: our landscape fabrics are so precious to us because we want them to last and they take yeah. so much time to burn that we just try to be really careful to not to yeah. like let them get shredded or anything
1: yeah. So have you guys tried cover cropping at all up there or is it too cold? So there's like not enough of a window of a season to do cover crops. In we there? just
3: don't have the crops out of the field long enough to get a cover crop established. And, okay. and then we, we'd kind of like, you know, be limited on which ones we could do because we wouldn't be turning them back in. So it would have to be like a winter kill, like a, a radish or something. But we find like we're, we're, we're able to get our organic matter up just with, with adding a little compost, a little bit of finished compost and uh, broad forking that it, it really hasn't been an issue.
1: An issue. Okay, that's good to know. Yeah, because I think, I mean, I love cover crops here, but it's mostly because our winters are so mild that I can keep something growing, not a flower, but I can keep winter rye or triticale mm. growing all winter. So it makes good sense. But I've always wondered yeah. about growers in super cold climates and how you would how you would actually fit that in so it sounds like you can still keep the organic matter up without that so that's good to know i think that's um an important piece of the puzzle especially when you're trying to grow biology in your soil um over time so um so, tell me a little bit more about biology in your soils. When you first opened up this hay field, did it seem like there was much life in it? And then have you noticed a change since you've been doing your systems with the beds?
3: Yeah, we've, we've definitely, uh, a, a lot of methods we're following too, or we're copying from other farms, like uh, Singing Frog Farm has been doing a lot with organic matter out in uh, Sebastopol, their vegetable growers um, in California. And they've been doing a lot with like adding compost and broad forking and, and, um, using a lot of these practices that we're doing. And, um, there's, uh, also an association in, uh, Massachusetts based on Massachusetts, Dan Kittredge It's the Bionutrient Association. It's Mm -hmm. doing a lot, um, for this kind of of style of agriculture. And so we're kind of grabbing a little bit from a bunch of different worlds. And uh, we're also following a lot of like with the biodynamic associations putting out with uh, biodynamic practices as well. Yeah, let's uh, talk
1: about that. Let's talk biodynamics for a second um, because I know you guys said that you use it a little bit and I feel like not enough flower farmers have really gone down that road. So tell us us a little bit about what you have used or what you hope to use and just the principles behind biodynamics if you don't mind. (laughs)
3: Sure, yeah, yeah. Um, so biodynamics came from, uh, Rudolf Steiner, who was answering, um, sort of questions of, of farmers who were noticing around the turn of the century of the 20th century, that the, uh, just fertility was going down. Seeds were not as, um, strong and healthy as, as they w- were in the past. And we were just kind of starting to realize we were degrading our land in Europe and, and, uh, now we've seen the same in North America and so Rudolf Steiner towards the end of his life offered an agricultural course to kind of answer the questions of these farmers and um, then he ended up doing this basically the seminar and explaining a bunch of practices and uh, he didn't give a lot more information on it beyond that that seminar so it's um, I've, I've taken Two-year course through the Biodynamic Association, and I'm still uh, not fully understanding everything he was talking about. But um, I, I can get behind the uh, <laughs> idea of, of energetics and and bringing these cosmic forces, how everything in the universe is related and kind of reflecting off each other and, and interacting with each other. And uh, he was most of his practices were based around concentrating like cosmic forces and things to allow fertility to be accessed within the soil and um it's a very different idea than like our our current scientific model based yeah. around NPK and just kind of it's more of an extractive mining of soil and and just dumping large amounts of of mined things from other areas to replace fertility that's taken um, and and then you know we're combining that with uh It's kind of the ideas that came out of William Albrecht and some of the people behind where the bionutrient stuff has come out, um, which is more of an idea of like soil balancing. And and you're kind of trying to correct all the little things and just keep the soil in balance. And that uh, combined with a healthy biology is is kind of allowing access to these nutrients that are normally locked up in the soil, but still might be there and might not need to be replaced. And so we're trying to balance of all of it. And we've found like some neat things like when we put down the rock dust and we've done the rock dust in a couple sites now, and we've we've noticed our colors get really vibrant in all our blooms and our plants seem really healthy. A lot of veggie farmers when they use rock dust get amazing size on their veggies. Um, We've always had great stem length on our stuff. I don't know if what part of our practices are causing that, um, but we've been very happy with our stem length. We've had very little uh, bug pressure, disease pressure here. Even though we are kind of at the bottom of two hills and a really wet property that would normally be prone to a lot of disease, um, we often like we send a lot of samples into our labs here if we see any disease, and we've often had diseases that they they say they've never seen elsewhere. But <laughs> we've never really had them in in bad quant. You know, we'll have a plant or two get get an issue, and we'll we'll send it to the lab. But we've never really had. Any significant losses. And even in years like this past year, a lot of our friends had uh, a lot of bug pressure and we were not having a lot of bug pressure here. We've just also done a lot to like encourage uh, birds and, and other life around here. So we, we kind of not sure if that's balanced out a lot of our bug pressure here.
1: Yeah, I think birds are a phenomenal weapon for flower farmers. And I, I assume it would be the same for all veggie farmers or any kind of farmer. You know, birds are this phenomenal workforce that we can put, yeah. you know, <laughs> just be yeah. like, go out there, eat those bugs, take care of them. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. I mean, we always think of the birds and even the flowers as like our co-workers. <laughs> so yeah. we're all yeah. kind of working, at, working together.
1: Yeah, kind of honor them like that. I like to to really try to make friends with birds, which sounds... Kind of funny, but it's. I think it really helps. You know, I've worked hard at befriending a bunch of wrens on my farm and providing them with the right habitat, and in return, they've. You know, they've been. Um, really wonderful to raise uh two or i think the one had three birds this year which was crazy in the one box and and then so then you know they they fledged you know four or five babies and then those babies stick around and the next thing you know i've got an army of wrens which they are <laughs> <Yeah>. so good <laughs> that's great yeah i think birds are underutilized or a lot of different wildlife for helping but i want to go back asher if you don't mind to the biodynamics a little bit more um <laughs> And is, are there any applications or preparations, I should say, that seem that you've tried or seem in your studies? Because I'm really literally at the very beginning of bi- biodynamics myself and trying to um, pull information out of that that applies to flowers. So in your studies, have you noticed anything that you think would be super beneficial to flowers in particular? Or is it kind of just a, a sort of broad spectrum concept for any farm? And there's not really anything specific to flowers.
3: Yeah, I, I think it could all be very helpful. I think uh, you know Steiner focuses on silica a lot. I think silica could be really important. We've got a lot of equisetum here, and so we are definitely leaning towards doing the equisetum. Uh, I'm so
1: right. jealous. I want that here. I don't have any.
3: <laughs> Come visit.
1: I will. <laughs> I'll bring you my nettles. I've got really amazing <laughs> nettles. Oh,
3: <that's laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the nettle teas. A lot of a lot of those ferments are, are really neat. We uh we haven't been able to make preps here. We've we've purchased a few from the Josephine Porter Institute and used them to like inoculate compost and things like that. Um, but we have a high water table here, so I've actually been discussing with other biodynamic practitioners up here how to do the preps because they require being buried in cow horns. And um, I think i what we've come to is we're going to need to build like a big mound to get up above our soil water level, but to also be able to like bury two feet in the ground. Um, wow. So we're looking into doing some kind of mound site where we could make the preps ourselves here. But that um, might
1: actually be great. Cause it'll be easier to like, one of the things that's kind of stopped me, not stopped me, but you know, it seems like a challenge for biodynamics is the bearing of the preparations Cause I have really rocky soil here. <laughs> so uh, Unlike yeah. you guys. Yeah, (laughs) so getting two or five feet down is like essentially almost impossible um so i like this mound idea i had never thought of that do they fit to the people you've been talking to Do they feel like that still got the same cosmic forces even if you don't actually you know sink it
3: down i i think everybody thinks so and i think it it does seem like it would be more beneficial to get as many materials as locally as possible so we can get like manure from our neighbor who has a a dairy cow and you know we can source most of the stuff from from right around here and then having it buried on this land does seem important although you know the josephine porter institute down in virginia does make preps uh, in mass and a lot of people use those and I, like i said i can't you know relate direct results to it we haven't done side by sides or anything but we have used some of those on our property and we've had great success growing um, we're we're also dialing our fertility off of saturated paste tests and trying to fix trace elements in it, fix you know anything that's kind of out of balance. And we're working with agronomists on that. Um, and then we're starting to even test just individual beds now, and yeah. then amending to each bed. And we're just you know weighing out grams of molybdenum and cobalt and all the different things that are needed. Um, that we're a little low on and we're just amending each bed directly now and starting to get a little more obsessed with that. And, uh, you see if that, if that has an effect, cause in, in theory, a lot of the people who are practicing that stuff and tied to an, a healthy biology as well, you can really lose your disease pressure or lose your pest pressure and your plants just get really vibrantly healthy. hmm And we we have often had people say like our plant our flowers look like they're glowing they're like often very vibrant.
1: (laughs) That's Uh, amazing.
3: Do you helping?
1: Yeah, yeah. Do you have any particular um, biodynamic preps that you've gotten from the Josephine Porter Institute that you think anybody who's just starting out might want to try? Like one of them.
3: Yeah, I think that the their like lawn and garden prep is just the basic prep to kind of fix all the, the biodynamic stuff going on on your property, and you can even spread that. Even if you just have a lawn, you can, you can spread something like that. Um, we use cool. their compost starter to inoculate compost. I, Ooh, that, I didn't
1: thing. know they had that. Okay, I'm gonna look to into that. Okay.
3: Compost and um, yeah, that's, I, I'm, I have a lot of interest in, in disease suppression through uh, like the silica and the yarrow and then the nettle preps
1: yeah i think especially for flower farming we're so prone to diseases that can just wipe out you know i'm i'm thinking like you know botrytis is a bad one and and then fusarium and things like that and it would be great to have like a solution that didn't rely on some really expensive um fungicide or something to take care of yeah
3: yeah there's also options like you know the trichoderma and uh bacillus subtilis we use some some stuff like that if we see issues coming in um like powdery mildew on delphiniums or something. Um, We we definitely will uh, often use the trichoderma on uh, when we're pre-soaking corms, Mm -hmm. anemone, ranunculus, stuff like that. That's prone to more like botrytis and stuff. Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, those are all um, excellent to use. I wanna ask you about the saturated paste test because I haven't done one yet. I mean, I intend to um, hopefully but if the, if the ground stays thawed out, which I'm not sure it's going to now as I, as, I, as we're talking, I've seen an inch of snow accumulate in front oh. of my eyes. So um, heads up, nor'easter coming your way. Yeah. Um, but uh, but um, for the saturated paste test, for listeners that don't know what that is, and can you tell me why you're doing those instead of just your average soil test?
3: Um, our, our average soil test up here in Maine is really based around, uh, University of Maine works with a lot of potato farmers. So it's, it's not the most relevant, um, to what we're growing and we're, we're using Logan labs. They do a little, little more in-depth, um, or have a little more in-depth options. And, uh, that's kind of recommended from the agronomist we're working with. Okay. And, and we're, we're taking a lot of advice on these things. You know, I, I, I there, there's some great publications like, uh, Acres USA that, uh, Charles Walter started that. Is, is great for uh, soil balancing information. Um, he's got a great book called Eco Farm. That's a great uh, read, but it, it's all very, if you didn't study agronomy, you know, it, it can be thick to get through.
1: Right. Uh, <laughs> um, do you, you found- Science
3: of Agriculture is another book I, I reference a lot.
1: Okay. Okay. And are there other books that you found related to flowers or you're just pulling everything from veggie I mean for myself so far I've basically just been pulling a lot of information from veggie farming and and even larger scale through acres USA and stuff are there any other books though that you think um really hit the nail in the head um
2: I mean we have so many books <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> me too
2: <laughs> yeah I think we we definitely are have looked at a lot of veggie people and I mean I think like the market gardener was one of books Mm -hmm. that really helped us set up our farm and lay it out um Mm -hmm. and Curtis Stone his stuff
3: too we're we're in uh Jim Martin Fortier's class the the course and we found that really helpful and nice you know we we kind of have to adjust the application sometimes but it's all the same basic information
1: same okay that's good to know it's good to know that you, you know somebody who's won flowers can still tap into that information nice yeah yeah so what flower crops have you found for yourselves to be the happiest in your system? Is there any crops that seem to really thrive for you? And, you know, and it, it's not just about it being no-till and biodynamic, but, you know, um, what seems to do really well on coastal Maine, you know, in your zone <laughs> with a high water table? <laughs> yeah, we're pretty happy with everything.
2: You know, we've, we've been mostly, like, we, we've grown this way pretty much our whole time growing so it's hard to say like what wouldn't work well but like all the crops that we've grown have grown pretty well we haven't run into too many issues or things that we just don't really grow the one thing we don't grow a lot of that was like a hard decision and we went back and forth on a lot is dahlias because Mm. it doesn't they you know one thing we've learned is that you kind of have to tap into like the identity of your own farm and not just you know do what everyone else does but that it can be kind of specific to your property and what you're able to do and your region you know like that each farm really has its own identity and and that's an awesome thing to to cultivate um and for us the dahlias like they don't really fit into our bed system very well and our soil it's so hard to dig them out in the fall and we don't have any good place to store them. And yeah, so that, you know, which just for a lot of reasons, we've just haven't, we've kind of cut them out and it's, and we get like, we sometimes get a really early frost, so we might not have them for very long anyway. So yeah, that's one crop that we haven't really, we
3: don't do very much of. We get a lot of rain in the fall, usually before we can dig them. And then they come up with like so much dirt on them and you know, it's yeah. just- like,
2: <laughs> Yeah, it it's off. just not
3: worth it. It's our field. And we, we just, there's no way to do them no-till up here. There's no way to really overwinter them.
1: Yeah. And yeah. I think I think it's important to just like, you know, to tease that out a little bit more for anybody who's listening who's new to flower farming. You know, newer farmers always get that like hunger to grow everything, yeah. especially all the super sexy crops that are like everywhere all over Instagram and all of that. And I think it's really valuable to know that once you get to, you know, year 5 or whatever year, it's really good to just decide, wait, this doesn't work for me. Like, even yeah. though it's like super popular, it just yeah. doesn't work for me. And that's okay. It should, you should be okay letting go. And I'm glad to hear that you guys have done that.
2: And another resource that I, that maybe people might have seen, um, there's a farm in Vermont called Footprint Farm.
3: Hmm. And I don't know that she, one.
2: Well, she's, they're veggie farmers and she is just a really neat person. It seems like, and she started this i think it's a website and she has an instagram for it called habit farming and she gives all these great um resources of how they kind of do their decision making because i feel like that's an important part of farming is figuring out how you're going to make decisions yeah yep, we, we also do holistic planning which is another good book um yeah what was
3: that holistic management. holistic
2: management um to help okay. us, like, get an overview of, of, like, what are we trying to do here, <laughs> you know, what, and yeah. how, do we, how do we want our life to look like in addition to our farm, with our farm? Um, so I recommend her stuff, because she just gives, like, she I think she's just read a lot of books and pulled out a lot of stuff about management, um, about, like, how to figure out, like, what worked and what didn't, and what are we going to do about it kind of thing. Yeah.
1: I think um, I'm going to have to check that out. Like as soon as we're done. It sounds um, like really good winter reading too, like to yeah. really dig into that stuff right now. Yeah, so so. Her,
2: her stuff's called habit farming. And then okay. we, we love the lean farm. Yeah. Love, love all those concepts. We deeply, deeply use those concepts. I,
1: I, I do have to confess though that I tried, it's still on my bookshelf, lean farm. Um, I tried to implement stuff and then I got super intimidated (laughs) and so I like kind of put it down because it made me feel like really sheepish about some of my my stuff but I feel like after several years um, that book has infiltrated my brain and my my system so for anybody who has picked it up and it's been like oh wow I am so not here yet. (laughs) it's okay we,
2: we love systems and we love have we love having like a, I, I, f- I feel like we've found a lot of mental freedom in having systems it lets you like you think it might be con- like it might con- be constraining but yeah it actually is like having a standardized way that we do everything is just let us be so much more creative I feel like in in our days
1: I feel like that I, it's funny that you say that because I feel like that's what I focus so much on with my floral design side of my business with the wedding side of things. So I, Worked super hard to develop like all these incredibly seamless systems for, you know, client intake and the way we plan a wedding and all these things. So I really focused on that side, but totally yeah. missed the mark on the farm side. So I think I'm I'm turning around and looking at the farm side more now. But I totally I absolutely agree. Systems are so beneficial to have. It's in such whatever. a
2: process though to set yeah, it up. it is. Up,
1: yeah. <laughs> It really is, but hey, that's what the winter's for, right? That's, uh, yeah. <laughs> and you guys have such a long one up there, so I guess you get extra uh, extra planning time. <laughs> yeah, when we're not having to
2: build infrastructure.
1: Right, in the cold, in the freeze. <laughs> uh, so before we wrap up, are there just any major lessons that you've learned about no-till farming in particular, or it can just be farming in general, or is there anything that you think would be really great advice to know Um, sooner than later in a farming career that you wish you had known sooner?
3: (laughs) I think try a a broad fork before you get a tractor, you know? Oh,
1: hallelujah. Yes. (laughs) It's a lot cheaper.
3: (laughs) We still want a tractor just for the loader, just for moving, moving heavy piles. But you know, I, I don't, I don't know that I'd ever drive it in my fields.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah. And I think, I think a lot of it is like you, you can ask someone how to do something or how they did something but you, you just have to try it you just have to try so many different things and and you'll you will learn so much so quickly just by trying and i'd also say like tarps are amazing like tarp your whole farm you will not believe yeah. how beautiful the soil looks and you didn't do a thing you know
1: yeah where do you guys get your tarps? Where are you, are you buying them locally? Are you ordering them? Are you using, like I use billboards at my farm. What's your source? Yeah.
3: yeah you can use billboards. We can get them from a uh, Paris farmer's union. Cause there's a lot of dairy farms up here that use them for covering mm, so we Yeah, get them. And we've been able to, you know, keep them going for, we've got five-year-old tarps now. And you know, we, we have friends that have been growing veggies and landscape fabric for 30 years on the same fabric. So oh, wow. things like it, you know, it is a lot of plastic trash if you just use them and throw them away. But if you take care of them and you fold them up when they're not in use and you know, we, we, we've, we've been able to get a lot of years out of all our fabrics and we definitely uh, we weigh that out as we're, you know, adding to plastic trash, but we think it's, it's really a, a strategy that helps us survive as a farm. It's, it's definitely the only way we can manage so much field space with only two of us. We, we couldn't weed at all and we had trouble getting the labor so
1: right how do you store your tarps that's giving them longevity are you putting them under cover somewhere or do you just pile them to the side of the field that's one thing I struggle with is I have I have so many tarps now it's kind of ridiculous and they're so yeah. valuable but then I gotta like they're heavy and how do yeah. I cart them around and where do I pile them up do you guys got any grands? It, Tips keep, for
3: that? Keeping them on a pallet is uh, helps to keep like mice out of them. We find when they're like bunched up or folded, often if if mice can get to them, they'll they'll chew on them sometimes. Um, we'll we'll kind of fold them up and put them on a pallet if they're not being used for long. But we really try and keep them either out or bagged up between an aisle or something.
1: Okay, okay. So you're just they're constantly kind of in rotation. Yeah, you're not we're necessarily like dragging them around. Yeah. And- yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we'll making I, a new field or yeah. yeah,
2: we we'd like to eventually like rest a field each year and just tarp it, you know. Yeah. so we're we're not quite we don't have quite have enough fields to do that yet, but yeah, yeah.
1: that's our goal in time. Yeah, I have to say I um I got a lot more um, comfortable with tarps when I watched um you guys have you maybe you didn't see it or um Jonathan Lease and Megan Down at um Springforth Farm. Um, have a no-till flower farming course and in that they have a video about how they fold tarps and oh. that was literally life-changing It <laughs> <laughs> yeah. was the, worth the price of admission alone just to watch okay, that well, video we'll that well,
2: maybe that'll be some winter viewing for yeah
1: us. i i highly suggest it just to um because that was one thing my crew and i always struggled with was you know our tarps are like you know some of them are 200 feet long and it's like what am i oh, doing cool. with this thing yeah we stop
3: at hundred by 30 we don't go yeah. any bigger
1: than that yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I regret my decisions now trust me <laughs> yeah you can, you can get yourself pretty nasty like
2: managing a tarp for sure yeah
1: yeah, yeah. and they're just so darn heavy after a while yeah. but they are so valuable so learning how to manage them and what the best sizes are is, is really critical yeah. I appreciate the tip about the palette I really should put mine up on a palette it'll probably help a lot with some of the you know, sort of skunky smelling yeah. <laughs> you know
2: exactly what you mean
1: yeah it's kind of gross (laughs) so oh well this has been a delight guys I've really enjoyed talking to you I thank you for giving all your time and and knowledge to this I feel like there are a lot of really good pieces that are coming out of this conversation that can help a lot of the other growers so I really appreciate um, all your knowledge so thank you and I hope you winter well there where you are
2: thanks so much for having us this was fun
1: Good.
0: Yay. <laughs> Today's episode of No Till Flowers was produced by Jenny Love of Love and Fresh Flowers with support from No Till Growers. Special thank you to Nikolai Fox for the theme music at Nikolai Fox on Instagram. Thank you to the Patreon supporters at patreoncom no till growers for making this show possible. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you are getting it and leave a review. That always helps us out. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you in the next episode of No-Till Flowers.